The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. You see, rivers symbolize the winding journey of life from birth to death and everything in between. To travel downriver is the natural order and life spills out into the great abyss. And to travel upriver is to return to the source, the moment of creation. What do you think happened to the people who made this? I don't know, but I bet if I could read those glyphs, I could tell you. Driven off by the constant inundations. There's evidence all along the riverbank of frequent flooding. I've taken soil samples to analyze back at the treehouse. You think Marguerite can translate these symbols? Oh, I'm sure she'd provide some insight. It's a pity she wouldn't come on this expedition. She needs to get out more. <laughs> Two days in the jungle, looking for an ancient rock, not exactly Marguerite's idea of fun. Unless it leads away off the plateau. Uh, which this river obviously doesn't. Begins in the mountains and ends in the inland sea. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, May 7th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Don't touch that dial for an hour. <laughs> it's not right wing. <laughs> it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to our show today, where you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Visit us at justrightmedia.org. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to Just Right on iTunes. And Robert, I understand you're going to be taking a, a what, a non-traditional look at tradition? <laughs> um, I think I'm going to take a traditional look at tradition, oh, oh, traditional and actually the good, the good benefits and the, uh, the drastic effects of tradition. Interesting. I'm going to try something a little different today. I'm going to try and paint a an image in the minds of our viewers that might help them in understanding economic theory and maybe physics at the same time. I don't know. But you know, using representative symbols is the way that human beings process information and are able to think. We talk about that a lot on the show. Some of these symbols are numbers or words that we use. Some are actually physical icons and symbols. And still other symbols come to us in the form of stories, pictures, and art. And it often helps, I found, in attempting to understand a complex topic or a complex pattern of relations or abstractions to be able to see the abstraction in your mind, to be able to visualize a concept in terms visual that are you know, completely consistent with the complexity of the abstraction. It helps. <clears throat> Now, the abstraction I'm referring to is the mechanism of the marketplace, or capitalism, if you want to call it that, which concretizes itself in the flow of money and of markets. And for all our economic, moral, and philosophic defenses of, or descriptions of capitalism and markets, I'm sure there are a lot of people who still have difficulty grasping the full picture and the necessity of being able to project and communicate an ideal in order to make that ideal a reality. So I thought I'd take a shot at doing something I don't think I've tried to do this way, and that's to verbally describe freedom and capitalism a bit in a visual way. Instead of uh, drowning in statistics and facts, we'll drown in water instead. How's that, Robert? <laughs> That's fine. If, if you haven't guessed yet, I intend to use water and how water flows and, and is created and consumed as my key visual. 
among other concepts that, and I would guess that, you know, some people are saying, oh yeah, I've heard that analogy before, how water and capital flow and fill the nearest vacuum or nook or cranny in the economy. You acted a bit like that when I mentioned it. And uh, you were quite partially correct, but that's only part of the picture. And oh, such a tiny fragment of the greater picture. We haven't even begun to sail the waters of a free economy. Besides being a great visual, water possesses other properties that make it an ideal graphic to use in illustrating my intended lesson today. Water is something that exists in nature, and its existence and behavior is completely determined by what we call the laws of nature. There's a reason that water doesn't flow uphill. This has to be our starting point of any valid analogy of money and markets to water and the principles being illustrated do indeed conform to reality and to the laws of nature that describe them. And this brings me to the most important of all distinctions and understandings that we must grasp before we can talk either about nature and the universe or mankind and the economies in which he lives, or water. And again, I have to thank John McMurray, the Scottish philosopher, for opening my mind to this line of thinking. And namely, the first thing we have to learn is the difference between prescriptive and descriptive. Bet you weren't expecting that one. If you take nothing else away from today's message other than to grasp this distinction, I will have accomplished my goal for today. Because to be aware of the distinction is to completely establish your mindset and attitude towards matters economic, which is our focus here. Now we've all heard it said before, it's an economic law, the law of supply and demand. But what we call this law of supply and demand is not an order or an edict or a commandment, nor is it a mere prescription for a desired system of economics or governance. Even though both of these pres prescriptions have been tried and failed from time to time. If you look at the supply of demand as a prescription, then you'll be forced into a political trap, attempting to manage supply against demand by edict. The major form this takes is some form of rationing. The so-called law of supply and demand is more like the law of gravity. It is a descriptive law, not a prescriptive law. It's a way of enunciating a principle that has been observed to exist in nature. And here's the kicker. It's an unalterable and unchangeable principle. And therein lies the important distinction between something that's descriptive and prescriptive. The law of gravity is not an order or a command to gravitate. <laughs> Go gravitate somewhere, Robert. <laughs> Although I've heard people use it that way, you know. Uh, it's merely a description of a phenomenon that we observe in nature. Gravity is less about forces than it is about free motion. Even though there is a law of gravity, no one can compel someone to gravitate. This is not the way a descriptive law works. But people do gravitate towards one another, and naturally so. Otherwise, there would be no people to gravitate towards one another, right? <laughs> and that's why we find ourselves constantly confronted with the eternal issue of the proper social conditions under which we choose to gravitate towards one another. According to John McMurray and his Conditions of Freedom, we gravitate towards one another to seek what he calls fellowship, right? We've been talking about this a lot. Well, I'll be talking about that ex extensively I, I, in the next I half hour. I think so. That's why I think our topics might touch on each other a bit. And, he's, and he writes, you know, if, if you're trying to explain fellowship, he says, that means, you know, you're trying to get behind it to explain something more ultimate. He says, then it, you're going to find that you can't explain it. It's like asking for an explanation of the fact that material bodies gravitate. 
we can only say that it is the nature of bodies to gravitate, that if they did not, they would not be bodies, that if the material universe were not united by gravitation, there would be no material universe. So the forces that unite men in fellowship express the ultimate nature of humanity. End quote. Now, McMurray's not saying this is a consequence of some kind of all you need is love, you know, kind of fuzzy feeling. <laughs> he doesn't talk like that. He's being coldly scientific about it. He is describing a law of nature, in this case, human nature. The water that flows from the rivers and lakes to the oceans is not attracted by some force emanating from the ocean. The water all ends up there because of a law of motion and equilibrium, both this descriptive. The mass of water that accumulates in the ocean does so because, not because water attracts water, but because of this law of motion that we call gravity. When an equilibrium has been reached, the motion ceases and the water will stop flowing there and flow towards a direction that gravity compels it to. Similarly, people say that money attracts money. They're making the same error as a person who might say that water attracts water. This is incorrect, and, and it's a prescriptive way of understanding why mon money accumulates in certain areas. The reason money appears to attract money is because that's where the money is flowing. It is drawn there by the economic gravity of profit. The presence of other money is completely irrelevant and perhaps even undesirable by those competing for profits. You know, it's money in motion, and that's how it gets there, and that's why it quote-unquote accumulates. This works on the consumer end of things, too, but I'm not dealing with that side of the equation today. Remember, freedom and capitalism are not systems or inventions nor a set of arbitrary rules. They are the words that best describe the ideal social and economic condition that results when certain natural principles are adhered to like the rule of law, which is yet another descriptive and prescriptive, uh, not prescriptive law. It describes a social system in which both the governing and the governed are subject to the same rules and laws. Whereas the rule of law is descriptive, commandments like thou shalt not steal or thou shalt not kill are definitely prescriptive. These are laws that rule, not rules of law, which are prescriptive. Now, there's a saying uh, that water always seeks its own level, and I found some varying interpretations of that principle online. They were given a, having a contest for people who could describe that principle the best, and the winners were these three, and, I, and they weren't quite exact. But one said, in simple terms, this means that without other forces acting on the water, such as wind, then the surface will be level. Water will fill whatever container it's in, be it a bowl or a lake, and the top of the one side will be the same height as a as the top of the other. Well, that by height he means from the ground. It can't be necessarily in the bowl. Another person said it means the water level will be the same in every part of the container, regardless of the container's shape. For example, if the container is shaped like a U, the water level will be the same in both legs of the U. If you pour mo more water into the left leg, the water in the right leg will rise too. This assumes, of course, that both legs are open to the air. If one leg is sealed off, it has an effect of the air pressure inside, and in that case, it, the water generally won't seek its own level. And third, this was a clever one, water seeks its own level simply means quality people of integrity find other quality people of integrity, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think, you know, symbolically, those are all true. And, you know, so too, <clears throat> the flow of money seeks its own level. And that level's primarily determined by the law, again a, a descriptive one, of supply and demand. Just as the same law of supply and demand applies to the pricing of goods and services. 
the water of money gravitates and flows towards profit and away from loss. Profit is downhill. Loss is the proverbial uphill struggle. <laughs> profit and loss are the gravity forces of cash flow. When the flow of money actually finds its own level, an equilibrium, then that economy could be said to be an established and stable one, and a growing one, because production must be kept flowing to ensure the stability. One does not earn a profit just once and then quit. The process of production requires a constant, never-ending flow of cash and capital. But although the laws of economics, including the law of supply and demand, are unalterable, unfortunately, profit and loss are not infallibly predictable. And therefore, in seeking pro profit, the direction of cash flow will always be determined by human will and intention, with an expectation of profit. There is always risk involved, and the results may not meet intended expectations. Now things are getting a bit more complicated again, aren't they? Because we're back to the human equation. So, as um, McMurray writes, he says, the law of nature, he says, but as we have seen, human nature is not merely a matter of fact, it's also a matter of intention. And again, we cannot explain it, we can only exemplify it. And he talks about the nature of knowledge, which we discussed on a previous show. Because thought has to be objective, it's about something. And so we are forced to become objective, rational creatures if we want to survive in nature. And, of course, that means that in order to properly deal with that something, we have to have knowledge about it. And in this endeavor, we may find that we're mistaken. Now that we've touched on the law of gravity, let's look at some of the natural laws of the marketplace. As we've seen, money and markets are a lot like water. The analogies, parallels, and symbolism are more than a coincidence, I think. The similarities are the result of similar principles acting on both, the laws of natures both physical natural laws and human laws of behavior. In economics, for example, market demand, if we were talking about water, we might be using the term mass, heavy or light, being relative to gravity, which is yet another principle we've been looking at. In economics, money supply would correspond with the volume of money, expanding or contracting. In economics, uh, trade barriers could be equated with dams, which prohibit flow built to prevent or curb the flow of water. In economics, again, profit would be represented as more water, while loss might be represented as steam or as evaporation when the money disappears. While savings and capital could be represented, we talked about this, Robert, by ice. Water frozen and unable to flow freely for a period of time. Of course, you could also have a dam, you know, creating a reservoir that had liquid capital in it, but still it would be d dammed up until someone decided to, you know, let it go. And markets could be represented by low-lying areas where water accumulates or riverbeds and streams by which the water flows in a particular direction. And like a riverbed, you know, you hear the same term. Sometimes markets dry right up, <laughs> right? It's just, the, the, the analogies are amazing. There, there's so many I could get into. It just goes on and on. I think the uh, analogy to my net worth is net worth would be a puddle. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> or a splash, right? <laughs> so, you know, water as a symbol has been universally used by current and past civilizations to represent many dimensions of human existence. If you recall our opening Lost World audio bite, you know, the river symbolizes the winding journey of life from birth to death and everything in between. In economic terms, you could say that the river symbolizes the flow of money and capital and the path it takes when allowed to freely and naturally flow. And he says to travel down the river is a natural order, and life spills out into the great abyss. 
in economic terms, a natural order is the free market and only a free of barriers market would allow the flow of money and capital to travel down the river into the great abyss of the ocean and world trade. If the government erected a dam, the flow would stop or be forced to take an unnatural direction of flow. You know, to travel up river is to return to the source, the moment of creation. If waters are a symbol for cash and capital, then it's to return up the river to the sources where the creation of money and currency takes place, the central banks and the printing of currency and the expansion of credit, which brings us to the next quote from our Lost World Adventurers. There's evidence all along the river of frequent flooding. In money terms, that would be evidence of trade barriers going up and down, or of monetary inflation, a dramatic increase in the money supply, or in other words, evidence of centralized government management of the economy. And, of course, finally, no way off the plateau, because this was the lost world. You know the story. This river obviously doesn't flow to the sea. It begins in the mountains and ends in the inland sea. Now, in economic terms, this is what the unions and labor movements within all countries would like, like it to be. They want it that way. Keep the jobs here. Buy Canadians, say Canadians. Buy Americans, say Americans, and so on. This would require political trade barriers and monopolies to keep the flow of cash and trade within each jurisdiction on each person's plateau, leaving local markets with no way to get off the plateau out into the open sea of free trade and world markets. The river of cash flows only within the local market with the consequence of lowering everyone's standard of living relative to what it might otherwise have been because it has nowhere else to go, even though there's an ocean of opportunity beckoning beyond the trade barrier plateau. More waterworks about why capitalism works when we get to the other side of this. We'll need several containers of water to bring for barter. Do these uh, replicators make clothing as well? Yes. Will it make me a uniform like yours? No. It most certainly will not. Kazon sects control this part of the quadrant. Some have food, some have ore, some have water. They all trade and they all kill each other for I it. I thought you said the Okampa had our people. Javid! My old friend! Water! Water, Javid! I have water! To replace all that I borrowed. Show them, Mr. Paris. Their ship has technology that makes water out of thin air! Janeway to Voyager. Energize. There's more where that came from, if you can help us. How can we help someone so powerful they can create water out of thin air? I'd be more interested in acquiring this technology that allows you to create water from thin air. three and five. Decompression alarm! Damage report, Mr. Gator. Ruptures in tanks three, five, seven, Straining nine. on the unwrap lines. They're gonna blow. Release the lines. Veer away, starboard. Every tank on the port side is ruptured, preventing all our water directly into space. How much water did we lose? 
10 million JPs, sir. Almost 60% of total potable water reserves. Emergency rations. Shut down laundry, showers, anything non-essential immediately. Yes, sir. How long will our water supplies last? Well, aboard Galactica, about six days. But one-third of the other ships in the fleet were depending on us for replenishment. If we don't find new supplies, they'll run out of water in two days. One-third, that's 16,000 people. Get the names of those ships. Tell the captains to go on emergency rations immediately. There's going to be riots in those ships. Civilians don't like hearing. They can't take a bath or wash their clothes or drink more than a thimble a day. Thank you for the warning, Colonel. Optical and X-ray telescopes say there are five systems within our practical jump radius. All five have planetary bodies with the potential for finding water in either a liquid or a frozen state. Put together a plan for rafters to scout each star system. I want the first launch at 1730. Yes, sir. Colonel, how likely are we to find water on any of these planets? Most planets are just hunks of rock or balls of gas. The galaxy is a pretty barren and desolate place when you get right down to it. Thank you, Colonel. The water rationing will make our supply problem worse. Dr. Baltar, please share the results of your study. I've calculated that the uh, rate of consumption regarding basic foodstuffs for the civilian population, this is based on information available to me at the time, the, the current civilian population of 45,265 will require, at minimum, 82 tons of grain, 85 tons of meat, 119 tons of fruit, 304 tons of vegetables, and 2.5 million JPs of water. Is that per month? Per week. Scary stuff. It gives you a real idea of how important constant production is to keep going. And uh, if interesting, too, the, the Voyager clip, you know, where they're talking about uh, uh, creating money out of thin air. If I want that technology, I'm thinking, yeah, like a printing press. <laughs> creating money out of thin air would be called inflation. And it's interesting, the president there in the Battlestar Galactica clip recognized that water rationing would make the supply problem worse. Our own politicians don't seem to get that, right? She recognizes that every individual acts in his or her own perceived self-interest, and no man-made law can alter this natural law about you know, man and life itself. The process of production requires this constant, never-ending flow of cash and capital, which is not wealth itself, as we were talking, Robert. And just as rationing makes a supply problem worse, so too do attempts at conservation, which is just a slightly less violent form of rationing, usually forced upon people by artificially high prices. And why do we call it an artificial price when it is, in fact, the actual price that people are forced to pay? The artificiality of the price is the result of the price not being natural, in line with that natural law of supply and demand, which is an unalterable descriptive law of the marketplace. An artificial price is, therefore, an unreal price because it does not reflect the real and actual conditions of the marketplace. Now, I could spend a week on this lone point and never really be able to fully express its significance. A false price sends out false signals to producers and consumers alike, each of whom may make plans based on that false price to their eventual loss and detriment, ca causing the river of cash and capital to evaporate into steam. 
you know, as electricity and water rationers have so bitterly learned, they end up paying the highest price for what they consume, while on the production side of the coin, supplies continue to dwindle as costs escalate. This is evidence that we're doing something unnatural, or in other words, doing something that contradicts the laws of the marketplace. Now, you know, they say that man was never meant to fly, but he never, nevertheless did. We couldn't beat the law of gravity, but we could use it. Nature, to be commanded, must be obeyed. We were enlightened by Francis Bacon. If I may borrow from his enlightenment, economy, to be commanded, must be obeyed. Now, that's the economy. Not, not, that's not the economy. That's just economy. In personal monetary terms, economy is about getting the best deal at the lowest price. In terms of nature and physics, it's about expending the least energy to achieve our objective. Economy and low energy expenditure always go hand in hand and are always relative to whatever other choices or options might exist or how many might exist. You know, former U.S. President Bill Clinton famously said, it's the economy, stupid. Well, that was a political statement. But in economics, it's the economy smart because you can't beat the so-called laws of the marketplace, but you sure can use them to your personal benefit and to all those around you. And I'm going to give you an example that we're all familiar with by now. <clears throat> you know, the technology we take for granted is not only the product of invention or ingenuity. The smartphone I now carry with me habitually is a remarkable piece of technology to be sure. Quite frankly, I never thought I'd live long enough to see such sophistication in communication and technology, not in my lifetime or not even in my grandkids' lifetimes. But the knowledge that made this technology possible has always been a potential to be realized for as long as mankind has existed. It is knowledge that demonstrably relates to the principles of, you know, of laws and laws of nature, otherwise your smartphone wouldn't work. Yet such knowledge was only realized in the most recent of times. How come nobody invented a smartphone, say, 1,500 years ago? Reality itself was no different then than today in the sense that all the laws of nature that we understand were also in play, even in the early period of hi human history. What it is the result of is a free economy having been maintained, you know, at a level of freedom long enough for the genius of invention and knowledge to accumulate and be traded in an environment without fear, and that's called capitalism. That's the condition that never existed in any era prior to the growth of the British Commonwealth, under whose umbrella this remarkable evolution towards freedom was made possible. Britain was said to, to rule the high seas, which was the key to keeping trade routes free of pirates and privateers of every stripe, including legitimate or rogue foreign nations. And, you know, why economy is what makes a smartphone possible. I mean, to be of any practical use, communication technology has to be affordable to the masses or it would not have a functional purpose. A smartphone, smart economy. One phone does not complete a call. What made a device, uh, you know, what, what made a device that to build from scratch in nature would literally cost a trillion dollars to create has been made possible to be owned by the average person for a very affordable and economic price. You know, from underground cables to satellite relays to microwave towers, which some object to, to the miniaturization of the components that now make it possible to carry in the palm of our hands the following. Here's what's in my phone, Robert. A phone, a television set, a radio, an audio recorder, a high-def video camera, a high-def still camera, email ability, texting, internet access to any site in the world, GPS, a typewriter, a computer with an entire operating system that reads spreadsheets, text files, PDFs, and just about any document a desktop computer can read, 
It's a storage device to store hundreds of hours of TV shows, music and photos, you name it. It's got facial recognition technology on it. It's got an alarm clock in it that I trust more than any clock I've ever owned before. And a flashlight that could blind an oncoming driver in a snowstorm. I kid you not. You know... That thing has come in handy so many times I can't count. But I'm a gas, and it all fits in the palm of my hand. And these are just a few of the things that I know my own Samsung Android Galaxy S4, which is already outdated, <laughs> can do. So, you know, comic strip character Dick Tracy with his two-way wristwatch communicator was considered a complete technological impossibility in the days that comic strip appeared only a couple of decades ago. So you can't fool Mother Nature, and when we don't try to fool Mother Nature... She replaces punishments with rewards and marvels beyond the imagination of those who think unnaturally. Don't know if my water analogies were helpful in painting the big picture or if all I accomplished was to flood everyone's minds with more complexities. By now, I'm sure there are some who think I'm all wet and that I should just dry up and leave, and I think I will. <laughs> Colonel Ty was right. Rioting broke out on a cruise ship and they reduced water rations. We need to demonstrate an ability to maintain order. We need to do it now. We don't have extra manpower for fleet security. You have the only armed, disciplined force available. Yeah, but I'm not going to be your policeman. There's a reason why you separate military and the police. One fights the enemy of the state. The other serves and protects the people. When the military becomes both, then the enemies of the state tend to become the people. I appreciate the complexity of the issue. And I won't let that happen. I'll send troops to the cruise ship. Commander, I won't let that happen. Sir, Dredus just picked up Boomer's Raptor. Let's hear it. Galactic crash down. Dredus sweeps in the cave, but it's time to break out the swim trunks because we found water. Repeat, constant water contact. <laughs> Be into the entire fleet. We are connected, sir. Attention. This is the commander. We have found water. Let's go have a drink. Fiddler on the roof. Sounds crazy, no? But here, in our little village of Anatevka, you might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof, trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. It isn't easy. You may ask, why do we stay up there if it's so dangerous? Well, we stay because Anatevka is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition! Because of our traditions, 
We've kept our balance for many, many years. Here in Anatevka, we have traditions for everything. How to sleep, how to eat, how to work. How to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. And I hope everybody here knows what's expected of them. Right now I'm going to be talking about tradition. Because a few weeks ago I suggested that without technology, any individual would die within days here in the climate of southwestern Ontario, even on a beautiful day like today. If you stripped away your clothes and took off your glasses, took the fillings out of your teeth, walked deep within the forest with nobody else around, unless you're less Stroud, you'd die within days. Now, to expand upon that scenario, which I thought about over the last couple of weeks, I'd like to say that just as we rely on technology to keep us alive, so do we rely on others. Man is a gregarious animal by his very nature. It's one of those descriptive laws you were talking about, Bob. Precisely. You can't get away from it. We need other people. The technology we use daily to feed, clothe, house, and entertain us are provided to us courtesy of our fellow men. But it's not just technology that we rely on from our brethren. It's comradeship, friendship, love, companionship, conversation, and as John McMurray said, fellowship. We rely on others to sustain us spiritually as well as physically. No man is an island. Now what keeps us together in harmony are shared experiences, gestures, languages, customs, and traditions. Without these, we'd all be strangers in a strange land with no common bond. And at the very heart of our need for others is the family. It's the first grouping of humans which we have any affinity towards. Beyond the family are the friendships we cultivate in life. Each of our circles of friends have something in common, but may not have everything in common with other circles. You may have a, a clique of friends who have in common a love of sport. You may have another clique of friends who have in common grouping to up together, growing up together in, in childhood. Uh, the two circles you may have overlap, or they may not overlap. But in each case, there's something to be gained from the association with others. And that which is to be gained is gained only by mutual agreement and voluntary cooperation. Once force enters into such an association, the bonds are strained and may even break, and the fellowship is broken. Looking even wider than circles of friends, we have a bond with those from the same neighborhood, or city, or country. We sometimes seek such connections with geography and tradition, however tenuous, when we find ourselves in unfamiliar surroundings. I'm sure many of us had the experience of going abroad, either alone or with other, others, and 
one or two friends and noticing someone who speaks our language in a country that no, you know is not English or has a Canadian flag on their backpack. The tendency is to strike up a conversation with the stranger to affirm our bonds to a common tradition, a common culture. These are the bonds which gives us strength in times when we might feel alone in a foreign country. Now, last week I lauded the Supreme Court of Canada's decision to instruct municipalities in Canada um, not to say a prayer before their council meetings. Yeah, which is a tradition. It was a tradition. <laughs> right. yeah, well, it wasn't much of a long tradition. Well. When I told my friends my opinion on the decision, two of them disagreed with me, saying that it was it's important to keep saying the Lord's Prayer before a council meeting simply because it was a tradition. Neither of these friends was a Christian, but they recognized that being in a country, the majority of whom are Christian, counts for something. Such traditions should not be discarded on an edict from the courts, they said. Now, I certainly understand their cause for concern as I see my surroundings and my country changing from day to day, not only in the traditions we share, but even in the language and the culture and ideologies we share. Some days it seems like we're experiencing that future shock envisioned by Alvin Toffler. That is uh, too much change in too short a time. Mm Mm-hmm. Like when money floods the market. <laughs> <laughs> Give a rest, Bob. You had your half hour. <laughs> anyway, it seems like the only tradition we have is that change. Is uh, there's always change, you know? Like like Tevye, the dairyman fiddler on the roof. We seem always confronted with the upheaval of change, and the uh, ripping ripping away of a comfortable uh, traditions. They're comfortable traditions which make life predictable. That's a good thing. Traditions which made us feel in control of our lives. So let's give a little bit more of a listen to uh, a great movie, by the way, Fiddler on the Roof. Did you see Laser? Was it, was it friend? Uh, woman. Are you still drunk or what? Uh, here she is. Sight of my lamb. Come here. You are to be congratulated. You are going to be married. Mary, what do you mean? <laughs> Laser Wolf has asked for your hand. The butcher? Oh, dear God, I thank thee. What do you have to say, Zeit? What can she say? Let her say one word. My firstborn a bride. And now I must thank Yenta. My Zeit, a bride. A bride. Oh, I thank thee. I thank thee. Oh, well, Father, huh? Mazeltov Seidel. Mazeltov Seidel. What kind of a Mazeltov is that? Well, my child, why are you so silent? Aren't you happy with this blessing? Huh? Papa, I don't want to marry him. I can't marry him. I can't. What do you mean you can't? If I say you will, you will. Papa, if it's a matter of money, I'll do anything. I'll hire myself out as a servant. Just I But we made an agreement. And with us, an agreement is an agreement. Is that more important than I am, Papa? Papa, don't force me, please. I'll be unhappy all my days. I don't want to marry him. All right. All right. 
force you. Oh, thank you, Papa. Reptavia, I, I hear you are arranging a match for Seidel. Uh -huh. He also has ears. Well, I have a match for Seidel. What kind of a match? A perfect fit. Like a glove. This match was made exactly to measure. Perfect fit, made to measure. Muttle, stop talking like a tailor and tell me who is it? It's me. <laughs> Myself. It's him. <laughs> Himself. Arranging a match for yourself. Tell me what are you, everything? The bridegroom, the matchmaker, the guest all rolled into one. I suppose you'll even perform the ceremony yourself. Please don't shout at me, Reptavia. Now, as for being my own matchmaker, I know it's a little unusual. Unusual? It's crazy. Times are changing, Reptavia. The thing is, over a year ago, your daughter Seidel and I gave each other our pledge that we would marry. You gave each other a pledge? Yes, Papa. We gave each other our pledge. They gave each other a pledge? Unheard of. Absurd. You gave each other a pledge? Unthinkable. Where do you think you are? In Moscow? In Paris? Where do they think they are? America? What do you think you're doing? You're Stitcher! You're nothing! Who do you think you are? King Solomon? This is the way it's done. Not here, not now. Some things I will not, I cannot tell now. Tradition. Marriages must be arranged by the Papa. They should never be changed. One little time you pull out the prop, and where does it stop? Where does it stop? Where does it stop? They gave each other a pledge. Unheard of. Absurd. They gave each other a pledge. Unthinkable. But look at my daughter's face. She loves him. She wants him. And look at my daughter's eyes. So hopeful. Tradition! Well, children, when shall we make the wedding? You know, Bob, that's a great movie. It talks about tradition and losing traditions, and you can see when uh, Tev, uh, Tevye changed his mind about a tradition over his daughter. Mm -hmm. Scottish philosopher John McMurray, who you turned me on to, uh, wrote extensively on the gregarious nature of human humanity and our shared traditions in a book called Conditions of Freedom. A masterpiece, by the way. Yeah. Uh, still uh, still available. Um, mm -hmm. Still in print, I understand, but very expensive. It's like 60 bucks. And it's only a small little book. Yeah, 80 pages. Yeah. Yeah. But you can get some used copies at Amazon. He often refers to these shared beliefs, experiences, and traditions as religion. Now, when McMurray speaks of religion, he means it in a sense expressed in 
this Wikipedia definition of the term. A religion is an organized collection of beliefs, cultural systems, and worldviews that relate humanity to an order of existence. I don't think he's talking necessarily about... McMurray is a little strange. Yeah. You know, he used words like faith and religion, but he will not mean them and in God. the same... And God, but he doesn't mean them in the same sense no. that we always ascribe those terms to. McMurray doesn't necessarily speak of any one religion either, or even theistic religions for that matter. Precisely. He talks of religion in a very general sense to mean a shared culture. Now I'm going to quote extensively from Murray because it's so good. Quote, the primitive human community is the family. I've already talked about that. The kinship group. It's also the original unit of cooperation. The common life of cooperative activity is grounded in fellowship and stands in no need of organization so long as the fellowship is unbroken. Now, since human nature is intentional and not a mere fact, um, and since the primary need is to maintain and perpetuate the fellowship, there must be a set of group activities designed to express the consciousness and maintain the intention of fellowship in a common life. These activities constitute the religion of the group. Religion is thus the original expression of the specifically human element in group life, of the capacity for reflection, of that reason which distinguishes man from the brutes. The unity of a human group, however primitive, is not mere fact. It goes into this descriptive versus prescriptive you're talking about again, well, Rob, isn't he, it? Yeah. He was big on that because it was very important to make those distinctions. Yeah, he's very descriptive. This is a, like a law, mm-hmm. a descriptive law of, of humanity is that uh, it's gregarious nature. Uh, to continue, it's, it's not, uh, it is not maintained by instinct or mere natural impulse, but by those informed and transformed by the consciousness of them, by reflection, by knowledge, by intentionality, by choice, I'll have to interject there, by mm-hmm. free will. Sure, yeah. The core of religion from its very origin is the celebration of communion, the expression and glorification of the consciousness of fellowship. Since all the aspects and all the activities of the common life meet in the consciousness of fellowship, for there are its content, religion is all-inclusive. Its objective correlation is the whole content of human experience and human activity. In its central function, it brings to consciousness the implicit human intention of unity in fellowship with its principles of equality and freedom. It maintains the intention in consciousness, deepens and strengthens it, and directs it towards its day-to-day realization in the cooperative activities of the group. As an expression of conscious reflection, it enlarges the field of fellowship in time, linking the living and the dead and with the generations unborn. In this way, it creates the sense of the group as continuing through time, overcoming death and the fear of death. Like a human continuum. Yes. Almost, uh, you know, to compare it to... Remember, he's also a a physicist and an astronomer. Mm -hmm. He knew knew his stuff. (laughs) And laying the foundations of history. This is the significance of ancestor worship as a form of primitive religion. It guides the intention of fellowship to its realization in cooperative activity. So giving rise to conscious techniques, to fertility rates, and all forms of magic even. In this field also, it exhibits the, ex- the extending and generalizing activities of reflection. It provides and enforces general technique of relationships in the practical life, which are valid for all its members, so laying the foundations of morality and law. Now, since the fellowship has, fun- uh, since the fellowship has to be realized under its conditions imposed by nature... 
It provides a consciousness of nature and the powers of nature as objective conditions of practicing fellowship and directs the intentionality of the group towards them. This is the significance of primitive nature worship. Since it is concerned with intentionality, it has to symbolize its act objectives. So, so, so there's primitive nature worship and there's sophisticated nature, <laughs> nature worship, like what we do. <laughs> you know, that's absolutely correct. I, I, I agree. That's I, true. I, I never thought of it. Just, just as you read, read that, I'm thinking exactly that. We, uh, we do worship nature. We, we, are, we, we have to. We worship objective yeah. nature and reality. Yes. It has been described for us, not prescribed. Yeah. It's not that we're a bunch of tree huggers, no. no. <laughs> since it's concerned with uh, intentionality, it has to symbolize its objectives. Consequently, its primary expressions are ritual activities in which all members of the community share. These religious rituals are part of common life, and they have a specific characteristic which separates them from the other, ordinary parts, and which gives, a, gives them an extraordinary character. They have a meaning. They refer beyond themselves, beyond the present immediacy of common experience, to that which is not present. They represent what is hoped for, what is feared, what is uh, proposed in common. So on the subjective side, primitive religion is an awareness and enjoyment of fellowship, as well as an aff affirmation of it. While on its objective side, it's a technique for the achievement of common intentions through representation. Religion is thus the matrix of all the representative activities of human consciousness and of their rationality. Of their uh, rationality because representation as an activity of the imagination is necessarily private and individual, and religion is concerned with community. It comes, comes down to symbolism all the time, doesn't it? How we yeah. think in terms of symbols always. And what are symbols? Uh, what are words if not symbols? Concepts, Concepts. are symbols, yes. mm -hmm. yeah. So it involves the demand that the private activities of the imagination should conform to the conditions of community and be valid for all. Religion, then, is the original creator of tradition, which is the total common awareness of the group as a persisting community. Think of Tevye mm -hmm. in Fiddler on the Roof, or think of your own community. Tradition includes, McMurray continues, on its practical side, awareness of the rules and techniques which are valid for maintaining the common life both as cooperation and as fellowship, and on its reflective side, a mythology which is valid for all its members, an orthodoxy of common belief. In this mytho mythology, two elements are fused, which are the roots of knowledge and art, respectively. The first is a, com a community of belief about the natural world, that is to say, about the persistent conditions under which the common life is carried on, and the other is a set of common beliefs about what is to be hoped, feared, desired, and intended, a set of symbolic expressions of the common emotions of the group. In this way, common values are determined which regulate the intentional activities of the community, providing common ground of priority in its choices. And that's uh, John McMurray. Now, what can end or what can disrupt this kind of tradition, this religion? Now, in Tevye's world, in Fiddle Around the Roof, in his world, he broke with the tradition of deciding who his daughter should marry based on the recommendations of the community's matchmaker when he realized that to continue to conform to that tradition would result in the unhappiness of his daughter. Her individuality would be harmed. He also knew that to perpetuate the tradition of an arranged marriage would require force, something this man of peace was repulsed by when he saw it coming from the imminent pogroms 
of the Russians of his tiny village. He gave his daughter Zeitel the freedom to marry who she chooses only hours after hearing from the Russians that there be a little mischief happening in their village soon. With violence hanging over his head, Tevye could not bring himself to inflict violence upon his daughter, and so breaks the tradition of arranging a marriage for her. And starts a new tradition. <laughs> it starts for a tradition of freedom yeah. and individuality, being at times superior to the collective traditions. Yes. You know, fellowships, religions, kinships, friendships exist only by mutual consent. It's only disagreement, violence, or even the threat of violence which can destroy them. There are those who might look at the necessity of community to impose community upon us. The imposition is by force. They'd say that we must force you to conform to the community for the greater good of the community. The kind of person who would use force to impose a sense of society, we call socialists. The kind of per person who would use force to impose a sense of community, we call communists. The kind of person who mm. we would use force to further the well-being of the group at the expense of the individual, we call collectivists. To encompass all of these types of people under one term, we can use the term evil. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's absolutely evil to impose a relationship upon others. It's evil to sacrifice the happiness of the individual to the rigid dictates of a community or a tradition, just for the sake of tradition. I, I go back to that's that. That's when you've lost your your um, definition of what what the the symbol represents anymore, right? Exactly. Yes. And that's when people lose their tradition, and that's how it falls apart. They haven't been told this is what this symbolizes. I remember listening to Dr. Laura Schlesinger once explain the Jewish tradition, which I had never heard expressed that way before. Suddenly, what seemed silly traditions suddenly became very real and concrete to me, mm -hmm. just from what I heard her heard her say you know and i'm i'm not jewish of course but i could understand the tradition after that oh sure and you know when tevya talks about his prayer shawl and his hat to show his devotion to god and their traditions and that's the way and this common belief in a god keeping the community together you know um there's something comforting about those traditions of course it's that sense of community and belonging yeah yeah and, I, and, and to see it ripped apart is... You gravitate um, to, to, to these other people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, I told you, you had your half hour. <laughs> you know, let's go back to that um, decision by the Supreme Court, which broke a tradition of sense, which is a short tradition, of saying a prayer before, the Lord's Prayer before a municipal council meeting in uh, Saguenay, Quebec. Um, Again, some of my friends thought it was a you know breaking a tradition, and, and like I say, I understand where they're coming from because traditions are important. They give us a set sense of community and comfort and predictability in nature. Um, but there comes a time, just like with when Tevia broke with tradition, um, when it re revolved around the marriage of his daughter. There comes a time when some traditions have to be looked at and saying, "Look, this is not doing us any good." You know, the symbolism that was evoked by that particular tradition at a particular time no longer works for the community. The community suffers by that particular tradition, so let's sweep it under the cover. You know, let's mm -hmm. sweep it away. It's time for that one to die. Maybe we can create other traditions in its stead. But right now, I think that the Supreme Court was absolutely correct. You know, tradition is necessary as long as tradition is, again, mutually agreeable. And rational, hopefully. And rational, <laughs> yeah, hopefully, yeah. 
though. Some some aren't. You know, I mean, look you. You look at sports events and going, I, I have no time for that. It makes no sense to me. Still, it's rational in the sense of that friendship and community that people share this event and the interest. That's all it is. It's not like, sure. you know, <laughs> science. <laughs> community is necessary, but can only properly exist in a culture of freedom and free will. The moment that force is introduced into such a condition, then the community is torn apart and tradition cease to be acts of camaraderie and become legal edicts. It's a fallacy to think that people like Bob and I who promote capitalism, freedom, and individual rights do not see the necessity of living among others. For people like us, the more the merrier. We love people and all the physical and spiritual goods which come from relationships as long as those relationships are ones of mutual cooperation and as long as those relationships are made freely between free people, free from coercion, and free from force. Ironically, it's only those who call themselves socialists who destroy society. It's only those who call themselves communists who destroy communities. It's only those who recognize individual rights who see the true value of living amongst others. And that's all of my half hour, Bob. So (laughs) join us again next week when we return. Until then, be right, act right, stay right, think right, do right, and be right back right here. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright <laughs> Problem? This is Thai food Here we go <laughs> We don't have Thai food on Thursday We have pizza on Thursday Yes, but we all agreed that the third Thursday of every month Would be anything can happen Thursday Well, apparently the news didn't reach my digestive system, which, when startled, has its own version of Anything Can Happen Thursday. Come on, the whole idea behind Anything Can Happen Thursday is to get out of this rut we've been in lately. Rut? I think you mean consistency. And if we're going to abandon that, then why even call it Thursday? Let's call it Quanko Day and divide it into 29 hours of 17 minutes apiece and celebrate it by sacrificing a goat to the mighty god Ra. I could go for some good. (laughs) 